podcast one production. Oh, look, another debit card in the post. And this one's purple. I'll put it down next to the pleasant sea foam and the bright pink one. And that one, my God, that one is orange fluoro. Don't get me wrong. A pretty debit card is nice, but well, to be honest, I'd rather have a working bank than a pretty card. For example, one of these new banks, and I won't say which one, one of them offered a great interest rate on savings, more than 2%. Hey, my big four bank account was offering me half a percent at best. So I quickly poured all of my savings out of my big four account into this account. And now because I work for myself, I keep a fair bit of cash and savings because it goes to the ATO every quarter. Until it goes out there, hey, I can earn some nice interest. And so I move the money. And as always happens, my accountant sent me my tax bill and I had to send a lot of money to the ATO. And fortunately, the ATO makes that super easy because they use BPAY. Now, BPAY was launched back in 1997 and it enabled Australian businesses to accept electronic payments. First over the phone and then on the web and now today via mobile apps. It's proven very popular. Millions of bills get paid every month using BPAY. So I opened up my new banking app. I found the BPAY details on my ATO bill and I kept on looking around the app for BPAY. I mean, it had to be in here somewhere, right? But I couldn't find it. I couldn't find it anywhere. And that didn't make any sense to me because BPAY is how Australians pay their bills. And Finally, I went to the website for that neobank and closely inspected all of the fine print about their transfers and their payments. They support BSB payments. Of course they would. That's how we pay one another in Australia. They support Pay ID payments. That's a nifty new system built on the new payments platform infrastructure that was mandated by the Reserve Bank of Australia. With Pay ID, I can pay someone. They'll receive the funds within about 10 seconds. I'm a big fan of Pay ID. Pay ID has a payment limit, and the ATO bill was way more than that limit. And besides, the ATO doesn't even accept Pay ID payments, at least not yet. Okay, so we've got. BSB and PayID, and both of them are good, but but no BPay. And it took me a moment when I realized this to digest that. I thought banks had to have BPay. I mean, the big four all have BPay. And I thought, if you're a bank, this is just table stakes, right? You have to do this. How can you call yourself a bank if you don't offer your customers BPay? And that moment, that singular unexpected, really kind of unpleasant moment, it led to this one. Because if this is happening to me, well, I can't be the only one. Banking used to be boring. All these years of being stale, flat and profitable, they're giving way to a new kind of banking, one that's still evolving, still incomplete, still in beta. Welcome to the age of the beta bank. Today, I'm Mark Pesci from The Next Billion Seconds, and together with banking futurist Andrew Davis, we're exploring this new world of neobanks. That's a fancy word meaning new banks, and we're learning how we'll be saving, spending, and investing over the next billion seconds. And in this episode of Beta Bank, we're looking at retail banking. That's the kind of banking that means the most to us in our day-to-day lives. Let me welcome back co-host Andrew Davis to Beta Bank. Welcome, Andrew. Thanks, Mark. It's great to be back. So, 
Andrew, I had this moment when I realized my neobank hadn't implemented BPAY. And, you know, I worked around it. I transferred the funds over a few days to a bank account which did have BPAY, and I sent it off, and the ATO was none the wiser. But I had learned something from this, that banking, at least for my personal needs, had requirements that weren't always going to be met by every neobank that pops up. So, Andrew, let's break this down a bit. Personal banking is known in the trade as retail banking. What does retail banking really mean in practice? Retail banking or personal banking or consumer banking all means the same thing, which is the provision of banking services to individuals, people like you and me and everyone we walk past in the street or sit next to in the bus or the train. Now, and this is one of the things is most Australians have bank accounts. Banking is well-serviced in terms of Australia. You know, there are countries that don't, and we'll, we'll talk about them in a further episode where a lot of people don't have access to the banking system. But by and large, pretty much every Australian. That's right. And in fact, uh, you know, almost every child now in, has a bank account during their school period. And we know that once we enter the workforce, that's how we get paid. That's how we shop. That's how we pay our bills. Cash and is diminishing month by month. And I remember because the week that I arrived in Australia and I started working, which is back in 2003, was the week I opened a bank account mm. here because, yes, my employer had to have somewhere to put my paycheck. Yes. And in fact, a funny story, a neighbor of mine who is a retired banker worked for Commonwealth Bank in the 1950s. His role was to fly to Perth and get on the ship coming from the UK and sign up all the 10-pound poms with bank accounts such that when they arrived in Sydney to immigrate, they had their Commonwealth Bank account ready. Okay, so what kinds of services are we really talking about when we're talking about retail banking services? So really can be summed up into three categories of services. The first of those is all transaction-based. So how do you send and receive money, such as how you get paid from your employer or when you have to pay a bill, for instance, your ATO example. All right, so we have BSB payments, which are payments that basically go from one bank account to another bank account. We have BPAY payments, which are basically meant to go to a merchant of some sort, right? From an individual to merchant or between merchants. That's right. You have pay ID payments, which are meant to go right now from individual to individual, peer to peer, although there's there seems to be some sort of flexibility around that. And are there other ways? I mean, I have, there's a Beamit app on my phone. There's, a, there's all these other apps that are popping up that are finding different ways for people to manage payments that really don't have anything to do with this. Is this something that's, that's evolving rapidly now? Well, it is. But the interesting thing is with the BPay and um, PayID is at the end of the day, these are just overlay services that sit on top of a standard bank account. Because at the end of the day, to send money into a bank account, uh, the BSB and account number has to be known by the processing bank. But of course, for the consumer, they don't understand the concept of a BSB. Most people probably don't even know what the initials BSB stands for. So bank, state, branch. Oh, okay. So if you look at a BSB, I think, for instance, Westpac may be 032. Um, the 03 would indicate Westpac and the number two would indicate the state. New South Wales. Yes. And then the following three numbers would be the branch number 
uh, of that branch in the state of New South Wales. So the fundamental structure of bank accounts haven't changed, even though we now see BPAY and PayID and these other things coming over the top. That's all about improving the customer experience and making the way of sending money ultra convenient. So we get payments. That's the first thing off the list. And then... So the second component is then, well, of course, to make payments and receive money you've got to have a bank account because a bank account is where you store the value. Hopefully you're in credit balance. You store the value whilst it's in your possession. Uh, You can't make a payment. You can't receive a payment if you don't have an account. So that's the fundamental thing that uh, everyone has to have. Some people have more than one. And and this is, of course, one of the things that differentiates nations that are well-banked with nations that are poorly banked. So India being a classic example that until recently, most Indians didn't have bank accounts and it made very hard for the government to remit payments directly to people. They would pass through many hands. There would be a lot of corruption along the That's way. Right. Um, whereas if you have a bank account, you can receive or make payments directly from that account. So the bank account is almost, that's the, almost the atomic unit of what a retail banking is. Exactly. And, and economies are much more efficient when people have bank accounts. Because to your point, then everything happens electronically. We don't have, um, uh, you know, seepage and corruption and everything else that may go with that. So that's the core requirement. And then the third aspect is, well, of course, sometimes you want to make a purchase and you don't have the money to be able to do that. So you need access to uh, a loan um, product. You need access to the bank's money effectively. Yes. And really the bank's money is just an accumulation of all the other deposit holders. So when you have a term deposit with a bank, that money has been reused by the bank and lent out to someone else. And we should be clear on this. And I know people are probably vaguely aware of this. The bank, by some process of magic, can loan out the money, the amount of money that they have in storage multiple times. That's right. And that's a, and the government has set those uh, benchmarks and that's uh, a, a world standard uh, in terms of that, for that allowing that to happen. But this is one reason why banks occasionally just go boom. It's because if they have more money loaned out and more of those loans go bad than the bank can tolerate, yes. then the bank's capital, the amount of money they actually have on hand for the depositors who think they have this money, no longer adds up. Exactly. And if there's a run on the bank, the bank may not have the money to be able to pay all those depositors who are standing at the counters wanting the cash. Okay. And this is one reason why you do have bank examiners looking over this going, everything has to be. Okay. So, so we have this idea that there are payments, there are accounts, and there are loans, that these are the three core pieces of what constitutes retail banking. Now, is retail banking really the big game here? Uh, If you take a look at the big four, are they making more money from their retail customers or from their business customers? So if we look at Westpac as an example, the bank has three main customer-facing divisions in their Australian operations. First of all, there's the consumer bank, which is provision of banking services for individuals, as we've been talking about. Secondly, there's the business bank, so they service SMEs and commercial customers. Right, but sort of below a certain size. Yes, that's right. Uh, and each bank will have a different definition on what that means. And then sitting above all that is the institutional bank, and that is exists to service large corporates and government bodies. So sort of ASX 200 or the state of New South Wales, I know. And that's right, other multinationals things. and so on. Yeah. But actually, in the case of Westpac, and I'd suggest that Westpac is not uncommon to the other big four banks. So with Westpac being a very large bank and covering all parts of society and all segments of the economy through those three divisions, in fact, the consumer bank 
out of all of the money that Westpac made, accounted for about half of the profits for the 2019 full-year results. Whoa, whoa, whoa. I mean, th- this is dealing with all of the big companies in Australia, the big multinationals, the big states. I mean, we're talking about tens of billions of dollars in transactions. And even with all of that, when you consider that Westpac has, yeah, I don't know, probably 15 or 20 million retail account customers, that that actually adds up to half of the profit of the bank. So consumer banking is a much more potent force than SME banking or institutional banking, even when you think about them together. Yes, and ironically, it's their very smallest customers that are delivering the greatest profit on a combined basis. Okay, so clearly there is a lot going on here. I'm now getting notifications sort of every month. There seems to be a new neobank popping up. I mean, the number of cards I have is growing massively, and they're all very pretty colors. Why can I trust any of these banks? What makes me think that if I put a lot of money in, and I've already put a fair amount of money into some of them, that I can trust that it's going to be there when I need it, when I need to pay the ATO, for example? (laughs) Well, the great thing is that in Australia, Mark, all of these banks qualify for the Australian guarantee that was implemented as a result of the global financial crisis. So today, every bank in Australia that has a registered ADI license, they have deposits guaranteed up to the value of $250,000 per account holder. And all of these neo banks qualify as well under that arrangement. So you can trust them just as much as you would a big four in as far as ensuring that that deposit and those funds will be there. So to be able to call yourself a bank in Australia, and this is an important thing because a bank is a trademark term, only the Commonwealth owns the trademark to it, right? So to call yourself a bank in Australia, you have to have this banking license, this ADL license. That means that the government has given you a clean bill of health And it means that all of the accounts are insured up to a quarter million dollars per account holder. That's right. Yes. And so those banks, neobanks, part of the requirement of coming to market is to fulfill those licensing requirements. Now, the regulator has introduced a restricted ADI version of the license to make that entry point easier. But over time, neobanks will have to migrate to the full ADI license. But for the consumer, there's no difference there in terms of the trust levels. They can rest assured that any bank they choose to uh, do business with in Australia falls under that guarantee. So we can trust the neobanks, which is great. And we have this pipeline as they're all getting certified with all of these neobanks popping up. I now have, as we know from all of the pretty cards that I've got, Lots of options. How do I make a decision about which new bank is right for me? Do I even need to make that decision or do I just sign up for all of them? Well, of course, you could sign up for all of them and I'm sure that they'd love you to do that. <laughs> but we're starting to see neobanks come to market with a different kind of subtleness in terms of their marketing message, the angle that they're presenting themselves uh, under. So, uh, you know, one could be calling themselves a smart bank. Another one could say, well, we have want to gain an intimate understanding and support your lifestyle. There's another one that's very much pitching that they're kind of anti-establishment. If you're sick of the banks and but you know you still need a bank account to live and work in Australia, then come and bank with us. So there's all these subtleties that are coming up. And I guess ultimately it's up to each individual person to see which of those relates most to them. I mean, how much of that is marketing and how much of that is functionality? Mm, well, good point, because at the end of the day, you know, banking is still a, a kind of 
very simple in terms of the core sets and services. So people are still going to compare interest rates and features and services, but I guess ultimately, if everything else is equal, maybe there'll be something that tugs at a heartstring that will attract you to one over the other. In a moment, we're going to talk to someone who has actually built a neobank. So, Mark, the term neobank. Yes, that term. Well, it's actually quite new, having become prominent in 2017, although some neobanks started to enter the market a few years before that. There are several definitions, though, and they mostly centre around the bank being largely or fully digital in nature. What do you mean digital bank? Well, digital bank means they don't rely on branch networks, they don't uh, send you forms to fill in, that it's all about uh, engaging with the bank through an app, through electronic banking, it could be online chats. Um, There's no reliance on physical presence That means that I don't have to go into a branch when I'm opening an account. We already saw that when I was opening up my various neobank accounts because I haven't had to go into a branch or any of them because they don't have any branches. And it means that I can pretty much use any ATM I want and pop it in so I don't have to worry about a particular ATM network. So they're basically sitting on top of all of the infrastructure that's being already present out there. That's right. And so, you know, because, you know, they still need access to payment systems, they still need to allow people to receive money and so on. Um, But even getting access to those systems is a lot easier than it used to be in previous years. So really, the main goal here is that they're trying to disrupt the incumbent banks because their, their cost models are a lot lower, they're very focused on the consumer, and they're thinking about customer experience. Okay, so if I don't have any bank branches... How am I interacting with the bank? So the main form of interaction is typically via the app on your mobile phone. You open an account with a bank, you download the app. That's pretty well a standard process. And so there is significant effort being placed by these neobanks on the design of those uh, apps and, and how they operate and the experience. And I have to say, having used a bunch of these neobanking apps, they are pretty much the nicest apps on my phone now. And when you compare them with my big four banking apps, and there's one big four banking app that I will not mention by name, but I basically scream inside every time I open it up because it's so hard to use. And it's as if they never really gave consideration to the kinds of user testing that would have told them that people are angry because this takes too long or people don't know how to do this or all of that. Well, historically, the apps of the incumbent banks, the big banks, have been designed by people who have lived their whole life in the world of banking. Whereas the great thing is with neobanks, these are people coming to market who perhaps have never worked for a bank. I mean, this is really exciting now. Banks are being created by people who maybe don't understand banking at, at in terms of the technical behind-the-scenes side. And that's, I think, very enlightening because it's giving us now these very fresh designs that are, are simple to use. So they don't think in terms of here's the old-fashioned or the tried-and-true way of doing something. That's right. They'll just rip something up out of the whole cloth and it turns out that people will respond to it or they can test whether people will respond to it. All right, so if neobanking is new, how prominent is neobanking right now? Well, around the world, the view is that there's about 100 neobanks now in the market or coming to market. 
And no doubt that's increasing month by month. And that segment has attracted about $2.5 billion of capital just in the first half of this year. So there's a significant amount of support flowing in to really create a lot of opportunity and disruption in the marketplace. So, Andrew, let's get perspective from someone who's built a new bank. Dominic Pym is the co-founder of Up. That's one of Australia's first crop of new banks. It's the first one that I found and the one that I signed up for first. Now, before that, Dom had worked with Bendigo and Adelaide Bank to develop a mobile banking app that's considered pretty much a triumph of usability. And it was a big step forward to bringing the banks into this idea of mobile first banking. Dom, welcome to Betabank. Thanks very much for having me, guys. Dom, Up is a retail bank. We've already sort of taken a look at what retail banking is. What does neobanking mean for retail banking? I like to take a simple view, which is that neo means new. So any of the new banks, they're obviously interested in leveraging the latest technology, you know, being mobile first or mobile only, that sort of stuff. But I, I don't like to really put banks into too much of a category. I think retail bank is a really good way to describe it. And NEO really simply means new. So Dom, do you think it's all about the customer experience? Is that what NEO banking is? I think the customer experience is absolutely key. It's a very important part of the engagement. So people will ask, you know, what financial services we sell. And I say to them, we don't sell financial services, we sell engagement. And that engagement leads to the delivery of financial services to help power people's lives. And I think that is a subtle difference, but it's a slightly different approach than, say, the traditional banks have had in the past. And it does differentiate the the, the group of neobanks that have sort of come into the market in recent times. In that what they're trying to do is they're trying to be, I guess, so good at what they do, so schmick, so nice, so pleasant, that that becomes the draw card for someone to get an account. Yeah, so in Australia, obviously, the market is dominated by the big four banks, you know, 85% market share approximately. And so it's difficult for a new player to get started. So you have to offer something different. You've got to be compelling. So for example, when we launched, we're the first bank to make it possible to sign up in less than three minutes. You know, we're the first bank to offer instant wallets like your um, Apple Pay, your Google Pay, your Samsung Pay. So those sort of things mean that you're actually not just delivering a step change, you're delivering an entirely a revolution. Like instead of taking five days to get a bank account, you can now get it in less than three minutes. And it's funny you should mention this because the story we opened the entire series with was when I was signing up for my bank account and immediately got that Apple Card issued and then immediately had a step change between using cash to using digital payments for basic everything. So you can see that for, at least for me, that in fact, the process that you engineered was exactly that, that it was so compelling that you, I didn't think about my other bank anymore. So is that the real trick here, that the next level of banking is about banking that is compelling? Obviously, different neobanks will have different strategies to, to, to gain market share and to become sustainable. For us, it's about being technology-led, And so technology for me doesn't just encompass engineering, it encompasses design thinking, it encompasses customer centricity, it encompasses ease of use, you know, all of that stuff that really makes a very successful business like an Uber or an Airbnb or or, or whatever. You know, what they've done is 
disrupt an industry uh, and their technology companies. They're not traditional players in that industry. So for UP particularly, my company Ferocia has come in. We've de- developed UP as a uh, you know technology first application, uh, and we're thinking about it from the customer's perspective. And I just think that different lens means that it's possible to offer something that's so compelling. We don't ask people to switch. We just ask people to try. They try it. They love it. They switch. So Don, being so technology driven, do you think customers are freaked out by not having branches? And how does the customer service model work? Not really. Uh, We've found that uh, not having a branch is obviously benefit for the bank in terms of costs. It's a benefit for the customer in terms of convenience. So you go to a branch, it's not really a good experience. You know, being able to do everything digitally, being able to do things on your mobile. If you want to deal with cash or checks, you can go to a post office to deposit them. So it's, you know, there's more post offices than there are, you know, any particular bank branches. So I think the convenience can be met in different ways. We find that very, very few. So we probably had 400, so we have 150,000 customers already. And we probably had about four, 500 customers that wanted to deposit or deal with cash in the last month. So it's a small portion of the population that want to do that, but we are very skewed towards the you know, sort of younger, more tech-savvy uh, users at this stage. And I imagine that in the future, that, that'll probably change. And if I do have customer service, what happens? Do I just do it through the app? Do I just message the bank? Yeah, so we've created a whole new way for people to engage with with Up. Is that we have a feature we call Talk to Us, and it's literally a, a, you know a real time chat that's embedded into the application. And what we've been able to do there is is you know get response times down to just minutes. So every customer that has an, an issue or wants to say how great we are or wants to report a bug or you know wants to have has an idea they want to share with us to help make the bank even better. They, uh, they just write into us um, within the app. They don't have to leave it and we'll get back to them, yeah, on average within two minutes now. I think last time we spoke, Mark, it was within four minutes, but, you know, like it's, it's better all the time. And so for us, it's about being able to scale that kind of customer service. And that's better than what you'll get from a traditional bank. If you have to wait in line at a branch or if you have to ring up and wait for the call center or whatever, it's actually better experience um, doing it in your mobile app and just talking directly with a human. Now, you built a business helping an established bank that's been to go in Adelaide develop this app that felt and still feels a lot like a new bank and that it's clear, it's smooth, it's easy to use. Does this mean that we could see the big four banks simply reskin themselves so that they look like new banks without actually being new banks? I think it's very difficult for them to do that. So we did. So my company, Ferocia, we partnered about eight years ago with Bendigo and Adelaide Bank. And when we joined, when we created that partnership and sort of um, joined up with them, they had about 75,000 customers using mobile apps. That was it. And now we have over 800,000 monthly active users, you know, so, uh, you know, 1.8 million customers, that sort of thing. So, so you know, we've been working with them for the last eight years to really um, sort, sort of bring them into the 21st century and deliver that experience. Like you say, it's, if it's not the best mobile banking app in Australia, up probably is, <laughs> you know, so um, it, it's a really, really good one. Now, to answer your question, it's, it's easy for a bank to build an app. And in fact, in Australia, the big four banks and others like Macquarie and ING, you know, they have fantastic mobile apps, but what they don't have is everything else around it. I call it sort of the excellence of everything. It's that customer service that you talked about. It's the real-time engagement with customers. It's the ability to um, iterate very quickly and deliver innovative new features and capability. It's the ability to run at a low cost base so that you can avoid, you know, the high fees and, and those sort of things. So very difficult for a bank, more, most importantly, to change their culture. 
So, you know, if, if you did what you just described, it would kind of be like lipstick on a pig. It wouldn't actually be, a, you know, so like a real uh, customer benefit. It would just be, oh, this looks kind of and feels kind of like a neobank. But you have to really build from the ground up with a new way of thinking, with new systems, with a new approach in order to be able to deliver the benefits that, say, Up can provide. And so, Dom, what does that mean for a big four bank? Do you think that they have this permanent disadvantage that they can never overcome? How do they ultimately compete? Well, they have some permanent disadvantages, um, including culture and people and overhead costs and buildings and branches and all those sort of things. But let's say they could overcome all of that, then really what they uh, what they have to do is consider their strategy. And there's probably, there's four big banks and there's probably four strategies that would make sense for them. One would be to acquire a, a neobank, you know, that'd be an easy sort of answer. Another would be to launch their own neobank brand, um, which, you know, we already see NAB having Ubank and we see Combank, you know, working with Bank West and so on. So they're probably, some of them have already sort of got that. Another would be just to invest in the space, whether it be uh, an international player or a domestic player, and we've seen some of the big banks doing that. Um, and then the last one would be, um, you know, to provide utility services to the industry and maybe power the neobank. So I think they're the four logical strategies in my head. I don't work at the big big banks, so they probably might have other strategies, but it just seems to me that there's a good fit for each of them to, to follow those sort of strategies. And yeah, I mean, for us, we, we consider them to be our current competitors. You know, we don't have a lot of competition from the other NEOs yet because they're all just sort of getting started. But we imagine in the future we'll have international players, we'll have the domestic incumbents, and we'll have all the new players. And so in the next couple of years, the market is going to heat up, which is only really a benefit for consumers. All right. So I am a consumer for the new bank. I am a retail banker. What is my experience going to be going forward now? I think you'll be able to enjoy uh, fee-free banking, for example. Um, I think that what we've seen overseas is a good indicator of, of how the market dynamic has changed. So, say, for example, in the UK or in the US or in uh, you know Europe, um, some countries in Europe and some countries in Asia, but certainly the UK is sort of the leading indicator. What you'll see is you'll see better product and service. Um, you'll see easier to use um, uh, banking capability. You'll see banking embedded into your life so that it's just really simple and seamless and you don't have to sort of buy banking products. You know, they just sort of happen really easily. Uh, I think you'll also see a lot of competition, a lot of new players, um, and we'll see a shift in focus from people just going with their mum and dad's bank to then going with you know something new and hip and interesting that they care about. I think the other trend that we've seen a lot of is social good. So it's very difficult for the big banks to change their entire organisation to say, oh, well, you know, we're good citizens. And some of them are. I'm just saying it's very difficult for them to do that. Whereas when you're starting from scratch, you can actually get across your values and your ethic and you can target that to your niche. So we'll probably see playing out a whole bunch of different niche new players that are targeting a certain demographic, a certain cultural, um, you know, part of the um, part of the population, um, and 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 offering things like you know good for the community, uh, good benefits for the customer, um, you know, good for the environment, you know, those sort of things. So we're going to have a generation of lifestyle new banks. Thank you, Dom. It has been a pleasure to have you on Beta Bank. No worries at all. Thanks for having me. Appreciate it. So, Andrew, one of the things that is very clear when you have any conversation with Dom, and I've had several, is that he has a passion. And you don't associate banking with passion. Is this one of the qualities that makes new banking different? And in fact, what we hear is a degree of, and some of it's the startupiness, right, that they believe in it, but that they actually, actually do have a passion for reinventing 
the banking experience, I think both internal to the bank, but also as far as me using it as a consumer. Yes. And I think the great thing is with the neobanks is that we're seeing all these qualities of being a startup. It's the entrepreneurism. It's the uh, desire to disrupt and to really turn everything on its head and bring about better outcomes for the end user, which in this case is the consumer. And so it's great now that these people have the support of capital and are attracting talent to help make that happen. And it's interesting because he did name check Uber and Airbnb, which are in a sense notorious because they don't have any infrastructure of their own. They leverage other infrastructure and up specifically is leveraging Bendigo and Adelaide's banking license and it doesn't have any bank branches. It's leveraging the postal system yes. to, you know, the, the network of post offices to do this. So are we actually seeing them learning those lessons, those quote unquote disruptive lessons and then applying them to banking? Yes, definitely. It's all about understanding your strengths, understanding what you're good at and focusing on that and then bringing to the table other parties that can help close the gaps that uh, you may not be able to address yourself. That brings us up to something else that he said that was really interesting, which is, is the future for the big four as infrastructure providers to the neobanks where they're providing all sorts of services that are expensive or difficult or highly regulated or whatever it might be that the banks have already done. They've already done the investment in and therefore they can then turn that into a service that they're providing to that's the right. banks. So banking as a service is a term that's already being talked about, typically outside of Australia, not so much within Australia, but Here's a great example of a bank that's supporting up by uh, white labeling some of their capabilities to allow up to happen. But at the same time, we also see new entrants coming to the market. In Australia, there's a startup based out of Melbourne called Frankie Financial. And they're also about providing infrastructure capability to support neobanks and incumbents as well. So everything's, you know, kind of turned around. There's the, the boundaries and the models as they existed previously no longer apply. Because a lot of this infrastructure would have been core to the bank and the bank would have defended it because it was one of the things that made a bank defensible, right? That you couldn't just have build a bank mm. because you'd have to build all of that infrastructure. That's right. And now if you can basically rent that infrastructure, like you're, you know, paying a utility bill, then what does the bank have to offer anymore? That's the interesting question. So if you're a strategy person in the bank, you've got to decide, well, do I make it easier to for um, competitors to come to market? Do I support them to compete against yeah. me um, on the basis that I still get a share of the pie? Or do I stand my ground and defend on all counts to try and keep the customers I have and attract more? To keep those customers and attract them more, Dom pointed to this kind of, I guess, almost lifestyle banking is what I called it, where the bank makes a statement of purpose and that it uses that statement of purpose to attract the kinds of customers who are going to be aligned with that purpose statement. Are we seeing anything like that yet? Isn't there's one of the banks that promises that all of its investments, what, is, it, is it Bank of Australia, I remember? Oh, yes. All its investments are very clean and all of this. Is that the beginning of a trend there? I think it is. It's all about social awareness and the social impact. And I think definitely that the younger generations uh, take that to heart and much more passionate about that. And, you know, uh, perhaps some banks uh, want to make use of that from a marketing perspective. So perhaps a little bit, they can be a little bit shallow in that regard. But I think there are others that, again, they're attracting the entrepreneurs and the talent who are aligned with those passions and those interests. And so you build this community of interest. I suspect that within a decade's time, 
you'll be able to look at your banking and investment app and know not just how much money you have or are investing, but how much carbon is either being generated or being taken out of the environment by your investments. Because I suspect that people will want to align those things, that they won't see them as being separate. All right. We seem to be getting our personal lives sorted with retail neobanking. But what about business? Are there business neobanks, Andrew? Well, yes, there are, in fact, Mark, not just outside of Australia, but we're starting to see that happen here in Australia. And so that's the topic for our next episode, and it will be really exciting to talk about that. If you want to learn more about retail neobanks, cruise on over to our website at betabank.show. You'll find everything there to go deeper. As deep as you need to learn as much as you want, that's betabank.show. To listen to any of my other podcasts like Cryptonomics or The Next Billion Cars or The Next Billion Seconds, just open your favorite podcasting app and search for Mark Pesci. That's P-E-S-C-E Pesci. Big thanks to Dominic Pimp for coming on to our show. Better Bank was written and presented by Mark Pesci and Andrew Davis. Created in collaboration with Podcast One Australia. Producer Alex Mitchell and sound production Matt Nikolic. Theme music by Matt Dwyer. For more episodes, search Mark Pesci Beta Bank, go to podcastoneaustralia.com.au or download the new Podcast One Australia app. Thank you for listening.